Scripture today is from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Now, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Ben, for reading. That's, uh, that's the Ben Bear that can answer any question that you have, in case you're wondering. Uh, good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here. Um, really thankful for uh, these uh, interviews that we're doing on Sunday morning. Again, just hearing people's story and how the gospel works in their lives all of their lives, and especially, uh, I thought that was just wonderful what Darian had to say this morning. It was really powerful, so thankful for that. Uh, thankful that uh, Caitlin was willing to come and, and uh, host that this morning. Uh, thankful that um, uh, Reagan is back this morning from Las Vegas. That's interesting. This side of the room clapped. This side of the room just kind of sat there, so what's going on here. But anyway, uh, I don't know. How many of you have noticed that Cody seems to sound better when Reagan is here? Yeah. This side of the room clapping again. Okay. So. Anyway, uh, listen, we're going to be in Acts 20 today, uh, but it's going to be a few minutes before I get there. Um, just uh, a couple things happened this week that um, I think uh, just further demonstrate the fact that, that there is spiritual warfare in our world. And it's difficult. And the, we, we just, we cannot remain silent in the midst of this. And um, I, I think it's important uh, as your pastor that I talk about this. And I know that it's going to be disruptive and uncomfortable for some of you. Others of you are expecting that I might say something. Uh, I want you to know I spent most of the day yesterday praying about this and, and trying to figure this out because, like I said, two things, one very personal early in the week and then one yesterday in Charlottesville. Um, and and uh, I, 
I just worked very hard at making sure that I was being, as Paul says, constrained by the Holy Spirit in the midst of this. Um, but what happened yesterday, I'll start with yesterday. Um, it just This is me personally, my opinion, but it, it really uh, disturbs me when somebody takes a word like supremacy and hijacks it for their purposes. Who is the only one who is supreme? According to God's word, it's Jesus. There is only one who is supreme. That word really should not... Okay, maybe if you found the supreme pizza, you can apply it there, that's fine. It should not be applied to a people group or any other person. I just, I have to say something about that. But even in the midst of that, it, it causes me to, first of all, look at that in righteous indignation. It also calls me, though, to make sure that it's not self-righteous indignation. And then that drives me inwardly, as it should, I believe, to do introspection. Where have I had that same supreme attitude towards others, holier-than-thou attitude towards others? And believe me, I've had it many, many times. And that breaks me. And that breaks me. And then that drives me to God's word, to be reminded. Let, let me just read you couple of passages here, just, just to remind you as your pastor. Oh, where is it? Here it is. Thank you. It's Hebrews 1. Hard to find because it's right at the beginning of Hebrews. But anyway, it's Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he was... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior, or you could use the word supreme, supreme, the supremacy of Christ to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent, more supreme than theirs. That's Jesus. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything is in submission to Jesus. Everything. He is supreme. What is Paul's favorite way to self-describe? He is a servant of Christ. The great apostle is the servant of Christ because Christ is supreme. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That Greek word there for preeminent could be translated and is often translated as supreme. 
He is supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is supreme. Uh, this idea of, of white supremacy, you, whatever supremacy you might have, it could be any color, but this idea of white supremacy is evil. It's sin, and we need to call it that. And we need to understand that there are dark forces in this world who are loving that. And it's their job, relentless job, to constantly go after people and help them understand in their minds that they're the ones that can do something right, that it's by their power that they can change the world to, and, and mold it into whatever it is that they think it's supposed to look like. So there's the demonic side. Here's the, the other thing that happened to me this week. Um, Monday, I opened the mail, and, uh, and by the way, th- 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 what I'm about to say is, is not in any way, shape, or form designed to try to make you feel guilty about how much you give to the church. Th- th- that's between you and the Holy Spirit, and those of you who've been around here a long time know that that's the way I see this. But this is fascinating to me. This is a uh, money order from the Arizona State Department of Corrections sent to me by uh, a prisoner that um, this church has been ministering to for the last five years and that I have known personally for the last 17 years. It's a money order for $35. It's his tithe to Redemption Arcadia. Anybody know how much prisoners who are blessed enough to get a job in prison, anybody know how much they make? 25 cents an hour. That's exactly right. That's what he makes. 25 cents an hour. And here's the thing. They have vending machines in those prisons where if you want a 20-ounce Gatorade, it's still a buck fifty. How many of you work six hours to be able to buy a Gatorade? And yet, he sends a... T- he's, he's, and, and he sent a letter almost apologetically saying, um, I'm sorry, I, I really can only manage to do this every two or three months as my account builds up, and then I just want to send one money order every two or three months. Can you imagine that? Okay, so here's the other side of this. Here's a guy who's been in prison now for 18 years. He and I are now counting the days down to when he gets out. He'll be getting out in less than five years. It's going to be a great day of celebration. His life has been changed by prison. But his life has been changed even more by the Holy Spirit, and that is evidence of it. Can you imagine making 25 cents an hour and taking the time, the effort, and the personal financial costs of of sending money to a church? I got to tell you something. The Holy Spirit's going to win this thing. In fact, he's going to kick some butt. Sorry, I said butt. It's it's a conjunction in, in church. But anyway, sometimes... We need to understand that there is a war going on. We're still fighting it. But Jesus is going to win. He conquered this at the cross. That's the whole reason why we're here. And he gave us life through the resurrection. And we're, we're in that really difficult period of, some people call it a period of liminality, where we're on the threshold. We've got one foot in this area where we're still fighting the battles of evil And we have one foot in the kingdom where we know that we win because Jesus has won. And that's what we look forward to.
So I want you to understand that there is a war. It's being fought. And we can't run or hide from it. We cannot deny it. And the minute we begin to deny it, we're defeated. We stand on Christ and the filling of his Holy Spirit. That's us, Arcadia. That is us. That's sermon number one. Here's sermon number two. Acts chapter 20. We are continuing in the book of Acts. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, This is on the heels now of the riot in Ephesus that we looked at last week. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 16, which we skipped in the reading, because the the meat of it is really in 17 through 35, Paul's speech. Uh, So it's going to be a little bit fast, 1 through 16, but I want to go through it because it sets up everything that happens during Paul's speech to the leaders at Ephesus. And the big idea today is really very simple, but deeply profound. It's word. Not like word. It's, it's God's <laughs> word. It's God's word. Okay. Uh, and as we go through this, uh, there's something I really want you to consider. Uh, two questions, and the second question actually is probably more important. Uh, number one, think about this. What is the true north in your life? Okay, true north. In other words, what is, what is the place where you find authority, all authority? There has to be a place where you find authority in your life. Even if it's just, well, well, me, who else would it be? I'm the authority. Or, or maybe you'd want to put it this way. What's the foundation of your life? What's the wisdom in your life? Where do you, where do you find guidance in life? You notice that um, Paul said that he was constrained by the Spirit. That, that word uh, literally, it doesn't mean um, pinned down or even necessarily held back, though sometimes the Spirit does hold us back. The, word, the Greek word constrained is much more robust than that. It, it, it literally means compelled or guided by. So where do you find your guidance? Um, and, and here's the second question. How did you make that decision as to what was going to be the final authority or the true north in your life? And the reason why I say this may be even more important is because uh, maybe some of you have never really thought about this decision. It just sort of happened. So did you make this decision passively? And did you ever really think about it, or did it just happen sort of by default? Or were you very thoughtful about it? Did you study? Did you pray? Did you consider? Did you ruminate on it? Um, Maybe... Maybe you're somebody who has simply conformed to the cultural norms or that you've bought the lie that you have it all figured out. I don't need to worry about it. I'm the authority. Did you engage with others? Did you seek wisdom in doing this? Did you find out what others might think about this? Not that others are necessarily going to guide you correctly, but in the right community, they can be a big help to that. Now, as I ask that question, though, here's, here's maybe the most important characteristic of trying to understand where it is that you find your true north or your foundation. Is this true north your foundation, your wisdom? Is it in an environment of grace and forgiveness? Or is it in an environment of condemnation? That's a really important consideration. God... Uh, Paul, God, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit through Paul, is going to make the point that our, 
foundation, our true north, is found in God's word, but not as an instrument of condemnation. It is an instrument of grace and forgiveness. So as you find your true north, you find your foundation, it should be with the understanding that God has forgiven us for our sin. And he's given us the grace to be reconciled with him. And that grace also gives us the power by the filling of the Holy Spirit to press into what God calls us to and what God wants for us. That's really important because it's really hard to press into something when you're just feeling condemnation, right? So this true north is is found in in, in an environment of grace and forgiveness. Very important to understand. Here you go. Holiness, which the Bible tells us that's what we're to be seeking. That's our goal. We're to be holy as as God is holy. This is what we're constantly working toward. This is our sanctification. Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. We are working our way to holiness, but holiness cannot happen apart from grace and forgiveness. It just won't happen. It has to start with grace and forgiveness. So Paul makes this case for the word in an environment of grace and forgiveness. So here's verses 1 through 6 of chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, that's the uproar in uh, the, the riot in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions, and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. He's back in Corinth is what's happening. There he spent three months. He spent three months in Corinth, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as, as, uh, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. I'm going to show you a map uh, of how this happened. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, sorry, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and of the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for all all of us. Luke is now with them. Notice the change in the pronouns. Waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the day of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for uh, seven days. So here you go, the map. So they're over here in Ephesus. And and Paul makes his way now over to Corinth again. So this is now... The winter of 57. So quite a bit of time has passed since we were last in Corinth. Um, although it was just a few chapters ago. It was like 51, 52 AD when, we, when Paul was last in Corinth. But he's back in Corinth. He's, he's in this city um, for three months. This is a city where, where there's um, a tremendous amount of antipathy between Paul and, and, and the church. Although he loves the church, it's a very difficult for church for him to try to lead and pastor because of all the issues that they have. It's also, by the way, the, the, the place from where he wrote the book uh, Romans, the, the, the letter to the church at Rome. But when he goes back, he's going to sail because he wants, ultimately, he wants to get um, down here to Jerusalem. He needs to get there, get ready, and, and head out to Rome. That's his plan. Um, but the Jews who are angry with him cause him to change his mind, and so he takes the long way back around and then finally up in here, he gets on a boat, and we'll see that he 
heads over here to uh, Miletus, which is the port city for uh, Ephesus. So that's where he ends up um, heading. His ultimate goal, like I said, was to get to Jerusalem, but he also knew by the Spirit, although he didn't know specifically what, that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem. So here's 7 through 12 now. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Some of you know what that feels like. Um, There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him by his arms. He said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them uh, a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. They were comforted a lot, as a matter of fact. Um, This is the first reference to the Christians actually meeting on Sunday. Uh, Eventually, Christians moved from the Sabbath, which is Saturday, to meeting on Sunday because the resurrection occurred on Sunday. So that was a sort of a first and second century transformation that the church went through. And look at verses 7 through 9, this whole thing with um, this poor guy, Eutychus. Uh, Luke gives us the detail that there were many lamps there burning. Um, Those lamps were burned with a type of oil that gave off um, an emission that actually, if there was enough of it around, it could, it it sort of dulled your senses a little bit and and helped, um, and and helped maybe lead you into maybe a little bit of of grogginess. So Luke includes that, I think, to let us know that there was more going on than just Paul speaking longer. But he does say that Paul spoke for a long time. In fact, if you study the Greek, uh, he says, Paul talks still longer. That's, that's kind of a nice way of saying it. Literally in the Greek, it's Paul spoke on and on. <laughs> that's what it says in there. Um, it, there's, <laughs> it just reminds me of this. There's this old joke about the community church that in the lobby of the church, they had pictures of, of men and women who had uh, served in the military. And one day... Uh, this little kid walks in, and he's standing there with his father, and a little kid says, who are these people in these pictures? And the father said, uh, those are members of our church who have died in the service. And the little kid thought, and he said, well, was it the 9 or the 1045s? <laughs> so Eutychus actually experienced that. Here's another little fun fact. The etymology of the name Eutychus is lucky. That's kind of funny. <laughs> so anyway, but the, also the language is very clear that, that he was dead. A lot of people try to take the language here and say, well, it was like he was dead, but he wasn't really Paul just reviving. No, he was dead. This was a miracle. This was a miracle. And then you look, they're back on the road again in verses 20, uh, 13 through 16. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assus, intending to take Paul aboard there, For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land, and when he met us at Assis, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and on the day after that, Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, 
on the first day of Pentecost. So uh, again, here's another map that kind of gives us an idea of what's going on. So you can see he came around to Philippi and he sails to Troas. He's there for a week. And then he comes here to Assos and he's over here in Chios and Mytilene. Oh, sorry, sorry, there's Chios, Mytilene, Chios, uh, Samos. And he ends up here in Miletus, which is actually the port city for Ephesus. He decides to go down here uh, rather than walking the 35 miles to Ephesus um, because it would have taken him a long time, number one. And number two, remember the last time he was in Ephesus, they weren't happy with him there. He didn't want to start another riot. So he thought it would be better if he just sent for the leaders of Ephesus and had him come down here where he spoke to him. And then he was able to eventually sail uh, down here, which we'll get to next week, to Tyre and, and um, Jerusalem. Just a couple of interesting little facts that I think are fun. Chios is the birthplace of Homer. So the, the great Greek uh, writer and, and philosopher. Uh, Samos is the birthplace of Pythagoras. So how many of you in grade school or high school ever worked on the, the Pythagorean theorem? Okay, so it's a very mathematical city. A lot of right angles in that city. It's really kind of cool. Um, Samos is also, obviously for you Cubs fans, a conflation of the name Sammy Sosa, but that doesn't matter. Anyway, um, and, and so... Paul has to get to Jerusalem, and he's got some anxiety about what's going to happen there, uh, as we'll see, but he really wants to see his friends from Ephesus. He wants to stop and, and talk to them, and so he calls for them, and, and as you listen to this extended passage that Ben read, which is what we're going to get to now, um, I, I want you to understand some things about what Paul does here. First of all, we need to understand that this is the only record that we have of Paul speaking to a group of people who are all Christians. They're already believers. So he's, he's not being an evangelical, so to speak. He's, he's going to proclaim the gospel in every way, shape, or form, but he's doing it to people who are already believers. We have wonderful records of him in Acts 13, talking to people who are not believers in Pisidia and Antioch, and also... Uh, again, uh, preaching to people in, in Acts 17 uh, in Athens to people who are not Christians. We, have, we, have, we know that in other cities he proclaimed the gospel to people who are not uh, Christians. Luke just chose not to record those sermons. And we also know that in Acts 15 he was like a conference speaker at the Council of Jerusalem, so he did that. But this is the one time we have this um, really magnificent uh, speech that he gives to people who not only are are Christians, but are leaders in the local church at Ephesus. And, and, and the more I've read it and studied it, the more I've come to appreciate the four things that Paul does in this speech. And, and I hope that we can see that uh, today as well. Number one, he spoke of the future, about the hope that we have, the promise that we have, and the inheritance that we have in Christ. Once again, we look at what happened yesterday, and we have to remember the promises and the hope of God, that this is all going to be taken care of. He's got this. Uh, he also warns them about heresy, which is a fancy word for false teaching and for false teachers. He spends a lot of time talking about false teachers and the problem that's going to be. He also talks about having a proper attitude toward wealth and material things, and then he emphasizes the word. He really emphasizes the word of God. Very important. So here we go. Uh, we're going to start at verse 17, and I'm just going to kind of meander through these verses depending on where I think we need to stop and, and spend some time. 
Now from Miletus, uh, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. It is well documented, and as we've gone through the book of Acts, we have seen the documentation of both the humility and the trials of Paul. That Paul has faced some very serious trials, and he's been very humble in the midst of everything that he has done, the great victories and the defeats that he's had. So uh, what he's saying is true, and he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem and constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Again, constrained doesn't mean necessarily held back. It does not, certainly does not mean tied down. It means that the Spirit is my guiding force, if you want to look at it that way, my true, uh, my true north. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's a nice note from the Holy Spirit. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So look at verse 20. Look again at verse 20, because I really love this. Paul says, I did two things. This is what I did as your pastor. I proclaimed the gospel, and I shepherded the people. He spoke publicly, and he went from house to house. And, and proclaiming the gospel and shepherding the people requires two constant things in your life. Prayer and study. Prayer and study. Prayer not just that we'd be filled by the Holy Spirit, but also prayer for the people that you are shepherding and pastoring and leading. Praying for them constantly. If you want to know what the primary purpose and job description of a pastor is, it is to proclaim the gospel and to shepherd the people which means he must be a man of study and prayer at some point during the week. And then you look at verse 21. Paul says, repentance and faith, both repentance and faith. We need to understand that the gospel is not just embracing Jesus and the path that he leads us on, but it is also rejecting and turning away from the path that we were on that we thought was so good and so right, that wide path that everybody else is on that feels so comfortable and it just, you get sucked into that current. We actually have to stop and reject that and turn away from it. That's repentance and then faith in Jesus to go on, on the path that he leads us on. And then verses 22 and 23, it's so interesting because of the ambiguity from the Holy Spirit. Reading that, did anybody sense that there was not absolute clarity from the Holy Spirit? Did anybody get that? 
Yeah, see, that's kind of troubling to some of us. Paul knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, but he doesn't know what exactly what's awaiting him there. But he does know that imprisonment and affliction await him in every single city that he goes to. And we're going to see in, in subsequent weeks that it just gets worse and worse and worse, this message from the Spirit, that it's going to be really bad when he gets to Jerusalem. So many of us, we expect that when the Holy Spirit communicates with us, it is going to be crystal clear and there's not going to be any question as to what we're supposed to do. And sometimes that happens. But that's not always the way it happens. Because part of our walk in the gospel and with Jesus is a walk of faith. If we know exactly what's going to happen every step along the way in our lives, why do we need faith? There's no need. This is why the Lord calls us to trust him, to submit to him, requiring that we know every step of the way what's going to happen, number one, means that we are in control of our lives, that we are God, and number two, it means that we're control freaks, which most of us lean that way anyway. God calls us to give that up and to submit to him. Here you go. If you're wondering about why you don't get absolute clarity from the Holy Spirit, not even the Apostle Paul was afforded absolute clarity from the Holy Spirit. That should speak volumes to us. Now, I'm not saying that I don't understand the natural human inclination towards wanting absolute clarity. That's just the way we are. The United States is actually what's known as a low-ambiguity tolerant culture. We want guarantees and promises of everything. We're a very transactional and contractual culture. I don't know if you realize that. We, we, we don't do very well with uncertainty and ambiguity in the United States generally. And then we bring that attitude into the, into the gospel and into the church, and we wonder why um, it can't be like that in the church where we have absolute clarity, and that's just not reality. We need to think in terms of reality. The Bible says that we're to have sober minds, that you're to engage reality for what it really is. I know all of us have an ideal about what life should be like, and we want to live in that ideal. I get that. But we need to be willing to embrace reality, and the gospel actually gives us the power to be able to do that. It just doesn't tell us exactly what's going to happen every step along the way. So we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't live in a fantasy. But even in the midst of this ambiguity, Paul insists that his life is put on the line for, for the purpose of finishing his call by God. He's going to finish strong one way or the other. Second uh, Timothy 4, probably the last uh, writing that we have of Paul chronologically right before his death in 64 or 65 AD, he writes this to Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Look at verses 26 through 28. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. There's that blood thing again. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. There's the blood again. This idea that the blood isn't important or irrelevant. Again, here's Paul. Two out of three verses, he talks about the importance 
of blood. I'm just reminding of you that, of that because we talked about that a, a few weeks ago. And he says, and here's why I'm innocent of the blood. It's because I declared the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink back from proclaiming the entire gospel to you. Not just come to Jesus and everything will be fine. That's not the whole counsel. That's not the gospel. He gives us the robust, full gospel. One of the reasons I love being a part of Redemption Church is because we get to preach through entire books, which allows us to do three things, three really important things. Number one, we are required to declare the whole counsel of the word of God by doing that. We have to do everything. Number two, it, it means that we're going to preach and teach the hard stuff. We don't get to avoid the difficult passages. Just in the five years that I've been here, we've done Romans chapter 1. It's a hard passage after verse 17. We also, last year, for seven weeks, we preached through the, books, the book of Judges. It's rated NC-17. And you know what? There were some people that were unhappy that we did that. Because it's very disruptive. It's very challenging. But we preach everything, even the hard stuff. And then here's the third reason why this is good. It doesn't allow the preacher to just get on his hobby horse every week and preach that. You have to wrestle with everything. You have to wrestle with what God is telling us and not just what we think is good. And that's good for the church. That is really good for the church. And again, verses 26 through 27 are about the proclamation of the gospel. And then look at verse 28 again. The shepherding of the pastor himself and the flock. The shepherding includes the pastor. I don't know if you understand that. You should. I should. For years I tried to do ministry without shepherding myself. And it was, believe me, a disaster. It was a disaster. For pastors, it's part of our call to guard our spiritual health, our emotional health, our relational health, and our physical health. It says so right here in Scripture that we're to guard those four areas of our health. And by the way, just think about this now. If those four areas of health are important to a pastor, how important are they to you? How important are they to all of you as well? Think in terms of that. How is your spiritual health? How is your emotional health? How is your relational health? How is your physical health? Are you Sabbathing? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you slowing down? Are you going genuine God's speed? Talked about that a little bit last week. Verses 29 to 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Uh, I know two things um, are pretty much true based on experience, based on what Scripture says, and based on talking to other pastors uh, congregations don't really like to hear this, but second of all, congregations need to hear this. I know those two things, and here it is. <laughs> Fierce wolves will come after the church. Fierce wolves will come after the church. There will be people in the church 
who will begin to speak twisted things. And some of them will be up here on the platform of the church. And you have to guard against that. And maybe the biggest one is that there will be people in the church who will come into the church with the idea that they're going to draw disciples away from the gospel and to them. And to them. And those insights from Paul are rooted, rooted in a robust understanding of human nature. Of human nature. Now, Paul knows Jesus, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We know that for a fact. But that's not all of it. He also knows people. He understands Genesis and what sin does to us and the corruption that it gives us. He understands all of that. And it is sad, and we have to wrestle with this all the time, it is, it is sad uh, how many people see the local church as a place where they can come in and sort of finagle uh, the acquisition of power and adulation for themselves and not for Jesus. Here's how one pastor described it in, in an essay I've, I've read. Uh, many church people engage in kingdom building, but it isn't God's kingdom. It's their kingdom. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and it's, it's happened repeatedly and consistently for more than 2,000 years. This is not something that's new. This, is, this happened from the very, very beginning. So churches need to be on guard against this. The leadership needs to be on guard against, against this. That's why we need elders. And we need multiple perspectives guided by the Holy Spirit. The desire for some people to use the church for personal, worldly, and even demonic purposes, many times without realizing it, I understand that, but it is pervasive. And Paul not only mentions it here, but he writes Timothy the same thing in his letters to Timothy. He says, be on guard against these people. And the pri- Here you go. And the primary way to stay on guard against this heresy and this false teaching, what's the primary way? Proclaim the gospel and shepherd the people. <laughs> Pray and study. See how it all fits together? I remember the night more than five and a half years ago, I was introduced to Arcadia, Redemption Arcadia as the new pastor after Justin went to San Francisco. And it was a Thursday night, and Tyler Johnson, the lead pastor of Redemption, came in, and we had a 90-minute Q&A. We had about 150 people there who were interested in seeing who the new pastor was and all that. And, and one of the questions, I remember one of the questions was, what are you going to do for us uh, as our pastor? What can we expect from you? And, and I said, well, actually, I, I think that's a pretty easy thing to answer because the Bible already says what I'm supposed to do. That is to proclaim the gospel and to shepherd the people. Here, here's another way of saying it. Preach and disciple. Preach and disciple. Now, that's not all I do. You understand but those are the first two bullet points under job description. And it should be for any pastor. Those are the first two bullet points. And, and I say it's easy to figure out what that is because that's what the Bible says. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an easy job, right? <laughs> it's hard and it's filled with challenges. There's no denying that. But you, I know you've heard me say this before. Anything worthwhile, in the, anything worthwhile. Anything that's good is worth putting up with the challenges and the hardship and the tribulation. In fact, in many ways, 
it makes it better. It makes it better. Because you have to rely on God. And it strengthens your faith to do that. So, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Notice, notice there, the word of his grace. It is not the word of his condemnation. It is not the word of his judgment. It is not the word of his harshness. It is the word of his grace. It is the word of his forgiveness. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There it is again, the word of God. He lifts up the word of God, which Jesus wrote, by the way, through his people, and which Jesus lived by going to the cross willingly and being resurrected three days later. That's our new life in him, forgiveness and new life, cross and resurrection. Paul specifically says that the word builds up because it reminds us of our status before God. And our status is Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There is grace and love and mercy. And it reminds us of the inheritance that we have of the kingdom of God. And the grace that Jesus gives for both living and for passing that word on to other people as well. And for serving in his kingdom. And then he says, I admonished you with tears. What what does that mean? Speaking prophetically, which people who proclaim the gospel are going to speak prophetically. Here's what that means. Okay, I'm not up here going, I can predict the future. I know when we're going to land on Mars. That's not prophetic speaking. Okay, Biblical prophetic speaking is you and I are sinners. And we've lost our way. And we're headed down a path toward destruction. But here's Jesus. He fulfilled the law. He went to the cross. And that sacrifice forgives us of our sins. And then his resurrection gives us new life. That's speaking prophetically. But it's also disruptive. The minute you tell anybody the path you're on probably needs some adjustment or maybe outright change. It's going to be hard for people. It's going to be very hard. And sometimes there are going to be tears involved when you have to speak that way. Sometimes when you just flat out have to call sin, sin, there are going to be tears in the midst of that because it's hard, whatever that sin might be. Again, some people's expectation of church is that they, and I've heard this from people, you you guys talk about sin at your church? Yeah, that's a problem for me. Okay. Okay. Their, Their expectation is they come here on Sunday morning Expecting to be told how wonderful they are every second of the way. Okay? And that there's no discussion of sin or human nature. That's not the gospel. You know what that's called? That's called humanism. That's what that's called. And by the way, you can get humanism anywhere. You can get it on the internet. You can get it at Fashion Square. You can get it at a restaurant. You can get it at Dutch Bros. You can get humanism all those different places. Okay? And by the way, we really, well, some of us, Some of us like Dutch bros in Fashion Square, okay? Nice places. But Dutch bros is Dutch bros, and church is church. 
last three verses. Paul does two things here. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. What? <laughs> See, again, we, we live in a time where we're like, oh, I lost that shirt. I'll just go buy seven more. Okay, that, that's not the way it was then. Apparel was valuable. You, had, if, you were rich if you had one change of clothing. So clothing was actually a commodity. It was a way of paying for things. It was like gold or silver. But I didn't covet any of those things. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. So Paul, as we said, was a tent maker. He didn't take a salary from any of the churches he sold. He went out and made tents most of the week in order to earn um, his keep. So he's doing two things here in this last three verses. Number one, he reminds us that although the Bible clearly tells us in Deuteronomy 25 and Luke 10 and in 1 Corinthians 9 that pastors, are, vocational pastors, are supposed to be paid by their congregations, they are not ever to be paid in a way that allows money to become the object of their ministry, which can happen. And, and by the way, it can happen if you pay them too little. There's that old prayer that elders will pray, Lord God, you just keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. You can, you can make money the issue by not paying them enough, but you can also make money the issue by doing what? Paying them too much. Paying them too much. And if the pastor has other means, maybe they don't get paid. I had a wonderful professor in seminary. I, he, he, was my, he was my Greek exegetical professor. He was, I, just, I really loved this guy. And I loved him before I understood this story about him. He was the grandson of, a, uh, uh, of, of um, uh, the founders of a large company that many of you would know if I said the name of the company. And when his grandparents died, he received tens of millions of dollars inheritance. Literally tens of millions of dollars. And so he went to Fuller and he said, you don't need to pay me anymore. Please keep me on the health care plan. I suspect that health care is going to get more expensive in the future and I'm just a little worried about that. <laughs> don't pay me a salary. Keep me on the health care plan. And oh, by the way, here's an endowment. So he recognized that he didn't need to be paid anymore. So that's the first thing Paul does. Here's the second thing he does. He gives us counsel about our attitude toward money and wealth and material things. Through sin, through the corruption of sin, one of the ethics that we've inherited from sin is, is an ethic of greed. That is sown into us by original sin. And I know a lot of us, we re I'm not a greedy person. No, no, I'm not a greedy person. Just because you can't get a higher paying job doesn't mean you aren't greedy. One author writes, some of the greediest people I know actually don't have any money. We, we automatically think, associate greed with people who have it. Everybody's got this issue. We're just at different stages of it. But in the gospel, this, eth this ethic of greed is now replaced by generosity. Generosity. That word, the Greek word for generosity literally means whole and unfragmented. In other words, we're living our entire life for Jesus, which means we recognize that the money we earn is not just ours, it is for the good of everybody, that we have generous 
hearts now. And the reason is because we know that the things of this earth are fleeting and perishing. Now listen, we get to take care of ourselves. The Bible calls us to take care of ourselves. We are to look out for our own interests, but we are also called to look out for the interests of others. It's not that you just make money and give it all away. It's that you recognize that it isn't yours and you don't hoard. You don't hoard. And Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. He's not saying give everything away. He's just saying, you know that feeling. I prefer on Christmas morning to watch everybody else open their presents. That's a lot more fun than opening mine. So this scene closes in those uh, verses 36 through 38. What happens is there's a very emotional goodbye. Uh, They pray together, Paul and the leaders of the church in Ephesus. They embrace, they kiss. And they were sad because they knew they were never going to see Paul again. They knew by the Spirit that they weren't going to see him again. But Paul says to them, it's not me that you need. You need the word of God. It'll be okay that you don't see me again because you have God's word. You have the gospel. You understand, it's not that Paul was great. We have to remember that. In fact, by Paul's own confession, he is not the first person that you would pick for a leader or a friend. He is the chief among sinners, he says. Stay away from me in my human nature. He is not, we wouldn't pick him second or even third as a leader or a friend. But the word of God is great. We can count on that. The prophet Isaiah says it. Paul says it in his letter to the church at Rome, uh, to church to Rome. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the emphasis is that it's the good news that counts. This is not about pastors or programs or preaching. This is about God's word and the faithful faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we are transformed by that. Word. It's our wisdom. It's our guidance. It's our foundation. It is our true north. Let's remember that. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you that, again that you've recorded all of these historical narratives in the book of Acts so that we might learn from them. So God, I pray that we would apply these things to our lives. And again, we lift up uh, everything that happened yesterday, not only in Charlottesville, but just in the hearts of people on social media and, and in communities and in relationships. God, Lord Jesus, come quickly, please. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.